You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. Oil, coal, hydro, nuclear energy, natural gas, energy infrastructure, solar power, wind turbines. The 2020s are likely to be the last decade in which the world can expect to see growth in global oil demand. 90% of the world is cheaper solar and wind than fossil fuels. And it looks likely that it's going to be 100% of the world by the end of this decade. For December 22nd, 2021, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. Considering that it is the world's second largest oil producer, the second largest oil exporter, and the largest exporter of natural gas, Russia seems oddly absent from most contemporary conversations about energy transition. Many people know that the U.S. became the world's top oil producer a few years ago, and that the U.S. has a conflicted view about how to deal with climate change, being torn between its financial interests as a top fossil fuel producer and its recognition of climate change and energy transition as priorities of national importance. And no one even has to think about the views of Saudi Arabia, the world's third largest oil producer on climate change. But what are Russia's views? Other than the news that Russian President Vladimir Putin chose not to attend the COP26 climate summit, how many people could even say what Russia's contribution to the talks was? There's a reason for that. For the most part, Russia has said very little about climate change, either internally or externally. It is deeply dependent on the revenue it earns from fossil fuels, where oil and gas alone account for more than half of its exports. And other than the warnings of its own climate scientists, most of the power structure in the country pretends that climate change is not an issue that Russia will have to face. But the reality is quite different, as our guest in this conversation explains. In this episode, we present part one of a two-part, nearly four-hour interview with Professor Thane Gustafson of Georgetown University, a widely recognized authority on Russian political economy. In his latest book, titled Klimat, Russia in the Age of Climate Change, he explains how, as he puts it, Russia is already one of the chief causes of climate change, but as time goes on, it will also be one of its chief victims. In this first part of the interview, we discuss Russia's oil industry, from its wells to its pipelines, and the importance of oil export revenue to the Russian federal budget. We'll also see how the Russian oil industry views the question of peak oil demand, and learn how the politics of oil affect the country's internal affairs. Then in part two of the interview, which will run as episode 163, we'll talk about Russia's other energy resources, including natural gas, coal, nuclear technology, and renewables, as well as its hopes to pivot to hydrogen production for export to Europe and how it might deal with the pending European carbon border adjustment mechanism. We'll also discuss Russia's perspective on climate change and its roles in addressing it, and wrap up this conversation with an assessment of Russia's fortunes as the energy transition and climate action proceed. So stay tuned for that. Then in the news segment, we'll note a follow-up to episode 160 on coal plant buyouts. We'll take a look at several demonstration projects using offshore floating solar. We'll recognize the demise of a major offshore oil project. We'll update the data on global power generation by fuel. And we'll celebrate the largest order ever received by a major U.S. solar manufacturer. And now, the first part of our interview with Thane Gustafson, recorded December 7th, 2021. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Thane, to the Energy Transition Show. Well, thank you very much for having me, Chris. This is a special pleasure. I've been following the Energy Transition Show for several years, so this is a special treat. Well, that's great. It's a special treat for me, too, because I have not had an easy time finding a good expert to talk about Russia with. So I'm really excited to have this conversation. So today we're going to talk about your new book, Klimat, Russia and the Age of Climate Change. 
And just to start, I really have to congratulate you on a book that is very up-to-date with accurate and detailed information about not just Russia's place in the global energy system, but also the global trade in energy. I mean, I think you've really done your homework here and conveyed an accurate picture of these big trends that are happening all over the world with all the different fuels. And it's also, I think, the first time I've seen references to this show in print, in the end notes of a book, which <laughs> themselves are really extensive. I mean, I think about a third of your book here is actually just the end notes. So thank you for that. It's great to see experts like you making use of the research that goes into our show. Well, that's great to hear. Your show was extremely valuable, and we'll have occasion to mention a couple of those as we move forward and talk about the energy transition, but also the present power and gas spike. Yes, indeed, which is very much top of mind for a lot of people right now. All right, so let's talk about the book. It centers around how Russia will fare in the energy transition and how it will deal with the challenges of climate change. And I should also mention that your book deals with agriculture and the demand for metals and other aspects of the Russian situation. But for this conversation, we're just going to focus on energy because that's what this show's about. And so you make a compelling case for why Russia stands to be one of the losers, not the winners of the energy transition. Now, we're going to explore all the evidence for that argument today. But just to get us started, what is your broad model for how Russia will proceed in the transition? Well, this book, first of all, a couple of master themes, Chris. One is that the book aims to take the long view. So a lot of people are focused on the immediate question of Russia's policy going into Glasgow, for example. But what this book tries to do is to put on the long lens and look at the coming three decades to mid-century. Climate change, this is the second broad theme, is that arguably climate change will have two sorts of consequences for Russia. The first will be primarily external. Now, that'll be the result of things going on outside Russia, energy transition, the technological advances, and then evolving climate politics, in turn driven by improvements in climate science and increasingly severe extreme events. And then the second type of consequence for Russia will be internal. But arguably, those will be longer in coming, consisting mainly of melting permafrost in the Arctic, or possible damage to Russian agriculture in the South. So those are the two big points of focus for the book as a whole. Okay. There's a swirl of things going on right now, particularly because of COVID. That's made things even more complicated than they would have been otherwise. But again, trying to stay focused on the long term, I'm arguing in Klimat that the energy transition will unfold in two phases for Russia. The first, over the coming decade, global energy demand for hydrocarbons most likely will continue to increase. Russia's energy exports will remain strong for the time being, both oil, but also gas and coal exports. And so Russia will have a decade of respite. During that time, its model will be able to continue forward. It'll remain viable. But and here's the crucial proposition. In the early 2030s, and this is, of course, a crucial proposition for, for you and your show and the energy sector worldwide, but for Russia in particular, in the early 2030s, a second phase will begin as the energy transition really takes hold. And at that point, Russia starts to suffer a decline in its export revenues from oil and gas and coal. 
And this won't be because of supply, but mainly because of declining demand. So the big question of the book is, as those hydrocarbon revenues and energy revenues, including coal, decline, what alternatives does Russia have? And here I think Klima does break new ground because, as you said, there are other chapters devoted to agriculture, to nuclear power, and so forth, so that the fossil fuels only take up about half of the book. Then the other half is about the potential alternatives. Okay, so I get that general theme, and you did structure the book around chapters devoted to various energy sources. So I think we'll just follow that format today, and let's start with oil. How important is Russia's oil to the world, and how important are oil export revenues to Russia? Well, Russia is the second largest oil producer in the world. In 2020, it produced just shy of 10 million barrels a day. The shale boom, of course, made the U.S. the top producer in the world. And so Russia and Saudi Arabia, Saudi number two, Russia number three. And Russia has the world's largest reserves of oil and particularly gas, exceeding even those of Saudi Arabia. So this is a hydrocarbon powerhouse, and it'll remain a hydrocarbon powerhouse. But the question is, what will be the demand for its product? Hmm. Now, oil exports, just far and away the largest source of Russian export revenues. By the way, just for framing the question in everyone's mind, out of, say, $5 of hydrocarbon exports from Russia, oil accounts for four, gas for one. Wow. Sometimes you get the impression with all the heated rhetoric about Nord Stream 2, et cetera, that gas is the big money earner, but it's not. $4 for oil, $1 for gas exports. Okay. Now, of course, that depends on world prices. It goes up, it goes down. So that, of course, is the other part of the Russian story as it is for any commodity export. There are fluctuations to be expected going forward. That's what commodities do, and Russia is hostage to that. So that makes it a special challenge to try to distinguish the short-term noise from the longer-term signal, the longer-term trends. Right. In very round numbers, 2019 was one of the high points. And in that year, in round numbers, the oil export revenues were about $190 billion. The gas was upwards of 40-plus. So you're talking about oil and gas export revenues taken together. And by the way, that includes gas liquids, as the Russians tend to report the crude oil and gas liquids together. Right. You're talking about a total in the $230 plus billion, and nothing else that the Russians export comes even close. And what percentage of Russia's export income is that? Well, all told, the oil and gas together supply about 60% of Russian export revenues, again, depending on the year. Right. And then another crucial number to keep in mind, and this is really ultimately the business end of the book, the other crucial number is how much does the Russian state get out of that mm. in the form of dividend payments, in the form of direct transfers of export revenues, taxes, and so forth. And again, that is somewhere around 40% of the total Russian budget revenues. That We're talking about the federal budget here. Wow. Okay. So the total picture is one of extreme dependence. Right. 
And I should note that not only do oil and gas prices fluctuate, which will kind of change the numbers that we were just talking about, but also over time, Russia and Saudi Arabia have kind of traded places, which one is number two or number three or before the U.S. shell boom, number one or number two. Mm -hmm. It's been kind of a, a race. I mean, I've been watching oil markets pretty closely for over 15 years now. And it seems like, generally speaking, Russia and Saudi Arabia are usually pretty close to neck and neck in terms of output. And they're both totally dependent on those export revenues. That's right. One of the exercises that analysts perform is to try to figure out something called the budget netback, which is the budget break-even point, which is the amount of revenue that each country needs in order to make its budget balance. Hmm. Now, Saudi Arabia is clearly in a class by itself. It depends much more heavily on hydrocarbon exports than Russia does. Okay. But still, we're talking about a very sizable chunk of money as a percentage of the Russian total budget revenue. Yeah, for sure. All right, well, let's take a minute and talk about the condition of Russia's oil production complex, because I think not many people really know much about that. And obviously, most of this stuff was originally built during the Soviet era. And then there was a period after the Soviet Union collapsed that there was a lot of equipment that just wasn't being maintained. There was major parts of the Soviet manufacturing complex that just sort of fell into disrepair. So I'm wondering how much life is left in the largest oil and gas fields. Well, I wrote a book on that subject that was published in 2012 called Wheel of Fortune, The Battle for Oil and Power in Russia. And that told the story of the late Soviet oil industry and what was happening there, and then also what the impact of the breakup of the Soviet Union was. Prior to that, I had written another book in 2019, which was called Crisis Amid Plenty, which called attention to the fact that even in the 1980s, there were problems in the Soviet oil industry. The best big picture way to think about it is to think of West Siberia as a huge province that is about, I think, three times the size of France overall. It's enormous. Mm. And this is the workhorse of the Russian upstream. It still produces nearly 60% of Russian crude oil. But this province has been declining for a decade now. It is the, what you might call, the brownfield center, the traditional center of the Russian oil industry. And it's gradually coming to a long ending. And so as you think about the outlook for Russian oil, it helps to think of it in terms of three colors. I used that as a shorthand in my Wheel of Fortune book. The brown oil, that's the brown fields, and there the production has been declining despite the best efforts of the Russian industry. Then green field oil, green oil is new oil that's been explored in the Soviet period for the most part, has been under development since the end of the Soviet period. But you might say that's the next generation and it's higher cost, it's farther up the cost curve. There's plenty of it, but it's not cheap. And then finally, there is blue oil, which is the, the remote frontier. And that's both literally remote frontier in the sense that it's offshore Arctic, including deep offshore Arctic, and then also deep underground, the possibility of tight oil. And at this moment, 
The Russians have looked at the Arctic offshore. They realize that they don't have the technology to go after it. It's high cost. The Russians themselves estimate that you'd have to have oil prices at well over $100 a barrel for the Arctic offshore to be economic. As for tight oil, well, that's an interesting story because if you look at the American experience with tight oil, there's a below-ground story and there's an above-ground story. (laughs) The below-ground story is your potential tight oil, mature, geologically speaking. The above-ground story is, if you think there is oil down there, is your service industry set up, is your financial sector set up to be able to go after it? Yes. So we can talk about both of those, but they're two quite separate stories. Indeed. At any rate, just to go to the, the bottom line, the Russians are not presently in a position either above the ground or below the ground to have a tight oil explosion like we had in the United States. At any rate, after reaching a high of 11 million barrels a day in 2018, Russian oil production has declined very slightly. Hmm. So they returned to the Soviet record in 2018. It took them that long to restore the industry after the breakup of the Soviet Union. Hmm. But that's about where they have been ever since. And COVID caused a, a slight decline. And for those who don't remember when the Soviet Union broke up, when was that? That was at the very end of 1991, beginning of 1992. Okay. And that was, of course, a history-making event. Right. So that took almost 30 years then to restore the industry back to its Soviet prime. That's right. Several things happened. The first was that the oil industry, as I mentioned, had been in bad shape. A lot of wasteful practices, a lot of inefficient practices. And one of them, for example, was indiscriminate water flooding. Hmm. The joke in the industry was that the Soviet Union was the largest water company in Europe because of the, (laughs) in effect, a large Siberian river that they pumped into their oil fields every year. They've kept on doing that, but that was a pretty damaging process. The other is that they'd fallen behind in their use of technology. They had never used fracking. Now, the Russians will tell you that they invented fracking back in the 1940s or so, and that, as far as I can tell, is actually true, but they didn't deploy it, and it was very controversial within the industry, but gradually and initially very reluctantly with Western experts and companies playing a large role, they gradually started using fracking They gradually started using horizontal drilling. Now they've entered the era of long-reach horizontal drilling, and that's played a crucial role in maintaining production, particularly in conventional fields. Much of that is still supplied, by the way, by Western service companies, Schneiberger and its rivals. Right. And for those who aren't familiar with water flooding, I'll just mention briefly that when you begin producing an oil reservoir, the oil comes up under its own pressure because it's been compressed down there by geology over millions of years. And then at some point, the natural pressure in the well starts to fall, and you have to use various ways to stimulate it and keep the pressure up so you can bring the oil up to the surface. And so water flooding, pumping water down into the well is one of the ways that that's done. But then 
as the so-called water cut rises, the ratio of water to oil in the liquid that comes out of the well increases, then you have to invest more and more electricity to keep pumping that water and to keep pumping that oil out. So there's actually a declining returns kind of a scenario as an oil field reaches maturity. That's right. And visualize the situation. You're out there in the middle of nowhere in West Siberia. And where are you going to get your electricity from? Mm. So in other words, you have a lot of infrastructure cost. Right. And as you move out of your traditional heartland in West Siberia, you're really not just in the boonies, you're in the deep boonies. And you've got to, of course, string power lines and the rest of it in order to be able to, to deploy the production techniques. And the Russian practice was to deploy water flooding from day one of the production of a field. So no wonder it was destructive. Yeah, and if you don't do that carefully, you can actually damage the field and ultimately reduce the total recovery of oil from the field over time. In fact, that's one of the things that's come up not only in Russian oil fields, but the same kind of problem, whether it's water flooding or CO2 flooding or what have you, that has damaged some of the other major fields in the world, such as the ones in Mexico and parts of the Middle East as well. Mm -hmm. That led to huge impassioned debates between the new owners of the oil industry (laughs) and then the traditional old guard of the Soviet oil industry. The old guard said, look, you're going to damage the total lifetime production of this field. And the new owner said, yes, but the oil today is worth more than oil tomorrow. So (laughs) I want to get that oil out right now. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you can imagine who won that argument. And so they're making heavy use of fracking today. Yeah, short-termism has a way of dominating so many conversations, doesn't it? (laughs) That's right. All right, so that's a really interesting picture there of the West Siberian fields. And I guess I also just wanted to mention that those are really mature fields, aren't they? These are fields that have been in production for a long time. And so one might reasonably ask how much life is left in them. Well, that's right. And the classic case in point is one of the most famous oil fields in the world, a field called Samatlor, which used to be the workhorse of the Soviet oil industry. Now, by 2015, it had dropped from over 100 million tons a year at its peak to only 15 and a half million tons. Now, I'm speaking in tons here, but you get the idea. The boss of Rosneft, Igor Sechin, and we'll come to talk about him a little bit later on, decided that it would be a very good idea to try to revive Samatlor using the latest production techniques. And so over a multi-year period, over a four-year period, Rosneft put absolute top priority into trying to revive Samatlor. Well, after all that, with a lot of heaving, they managed to get up from 15.5 to 19.4. And that was only after increasing drilling tenfold. So you see what you're up against in West Siberia as you try to slow the steady step-by-step rearguard retreat of West Siberia. Right. And for those who think in million barrels a day like me and not million tons per year, 
one of my just sort of mental mnemonics, I guess, is that if you take that million ton number and divide it by about 50, you'll get roughly the million barrels per day number. So Mm -hmm. 10 million barrels a day is about 560 million tons per year. Mm -hmm. All right. So what about unconventional oil? So 15 million tons would be about 300,000 barrels a day. So what does that translate to? About a 20% increase in production in some outdoors. So at any rate, that's symptomatic of what you're up against. Right. So that's really a very expensive proposition to try to revive a field like that that's been damaged by water flooding. That's right. And so that brings us back to Russia's position on the cost curve. Mm. You know, if peak oil demand, once it takes hold, you're going to have a desperate race for that last barrel to be the last man standing. Mm-hmm. Russia, meanwhile, is going to be higher up on the cost curve. They'll still be exporting oil, but what will be their market for it? And of course, what will be the margin? Right. And this is something that I think it's important for people to understand. And you often hear this about Saudi Arabia's oil production, for example, because like from Gawar, the largest oil field in the world, Saudi Arabia has invested in that complex over decades. That's all investment in the past. And from that field, they can still produce some oil at a ridiculously low price, you know, 10 or 20, $25 a barrel, whatever it is. But for their newer fields, <laughs> you're looking at more like $75 a barrel to make that thing profitable. And so when you're talking about an oil province as large as Saudi Arabia or as Russia, it's important to understand that there's actually a huge range in the profitability and that the older mature fields that are still very cheap to produce are actually a declining share of the total output. And so as time goes on, those costs overall increase and therefore the price that the oil province needs to get for their oil needs to keep going up for them to be profitable. And this is something that I think was not well understood, particularly 15 years ago when we were talking about peak oil a little more. Well, that's right. And so the picture that is so dramatic here is visualize someone who is running up a hill that is growing steadily steeper. And the more he runs, the steeper it's going to get, practically indefinitely. So where are you on the hill today? For your listeners who want to follow in a little bit more detail in real time, the magic place to look is where Rosneft is working on a new field, or rather a new area under a company called Vostok Oil. That means East, Eastern Oil. And its partner there is BP. Now that brings in, of course, a very important facet of this whole business. BP has been involved in Russia since John Brown's day and owns 20% of the national oil company, Rosneft. It is very heavily involved in the Vostok prospect. So that will be a very useful litmus test of where Russia is on that uphill run or whether they manage to make the slope a little less steep. It's not impossible. Well, okay, so we've talked about how kind of the legacy mature fields of West Siberia are essentially declining over time. But back to the point about how new oil, or as you called it, the green oil that we could produce from things like tide oil or unconventional oil, as we used to call it, or as lay people call it these days, simply shale or fracking. Is there any hope for Russia to repeat the success of the tight oil boom in the U.S.? Because, again, these are much higher cost barrels. 
We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, extensive show notes, interview transcripts, the text of the news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. As a follow-up to episode 160, alert listener Emil van Druten tweeted about an announcement by the Dutch government that it would buy out the 730-megawatt Onyx power plant in Rotterdam for 212 million euros, or $242 million, and shut it down in order to meet its climate goals. The plant is very young, having just opened in 2015, and is one of four coal-fired power plants in the Netherlands due to be shut down by 2030 under a 2018 government decision. Riverstone Holdings, which owns the plant, will spend 23 million euros on a just transition social plan for the plant's workers. Emil noted that at 327 euros per megawatt, the price for the plant was just under the maximum subsidy of 328 euros per megawatt, and was high considering that the book value of the plant was only 96 million euros and the fact that the plant was already broken. Riverstone bought the plant as part of a 2019 deal in which it acquired the interests of French utility Angers SA in the plant, along with Angers' three other coal plants in Germany, which are also scheduled to be shut down by 2038 at the latest. Considering that Riverstone paid just 200 million euros for Angers' interest in all four plants, it seems the investment group made a tidy profit on the buyout. Commenting on the deal, our guest in episode 160, Justin Guay, noted, it violates one of our rules, price discovery or auctions, to avoid public fleecing. Item 2. Listeners will remember that at the end of episode 155 on marine energy, we wondered about the state of floating solar, sometimes called photovoltaics, in marine applications. Nearly all floating solar projects to date have been on freshwater. So two recent announcements... Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Chris Nelder creates the show, Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant, and Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.